What I'm about to do is what I call a put-my-money-where-my-mouth-is sermon. A put-my-money-where-my-mouth-is sermon, what I mean is we're talking about the fear of God, what it is, what it means, how it's produced in the soul, the radical life change and transformation that it brings to our lives, and yet, and yet I have asserted in the last two sermons, I have said that the fear of God is produced and cultivated in the soul through careful, rigorous meditation upon the Word. In other words, I have asserted, I have asserted that the fear of God is cultivated by the majesty of God seen and savored in the Word of God. The fear of God is cultivated when we see the majesty of God seen and savored in the Word of God. And so I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to put that assertion to the test by preaching what is perhaps the most profound display of the majesty of God found in the Bible, namely Isaiah chapter 6. And when we're done, see if you don't fear God a little more. And I want to begin by saying that three of the greatest years of my life are the ones I spent in seminary training for pastoral ministry. I loved every single moment of my training. And, and you see, one of the things that made my seminary a particularly electric place to be is that they weren't interested in playing academic games. They were not interested in intellectual horseplay or academic gamesmanship. There was nothing theoretical about learning how to handle God's Word. Even though they never put it this way necessarily, my seminary had the mission to light the world on fire through the proclamation of the Word of God. Their tagline, motto, as you know, was we train men because lives depend on it, and I love that. It's all very urgent and rigorous and boot camp-like. And you understand the whole purpose of ministry is to train you for a, a lifetime of ministry to handle the Word of God with power and precision and with passion, to handle with skill the most lethal instrument of change known to man. That was my seminary. That is my profession. That is my calling. And you have to understand that the whole seminary experience, it's by design supposed to be a little traumatic, <laughs> It's a little dose of PTSD to prepare you for the rigors of ministry. I spent three years of my life getting little sleep, drinking bad coffee, being pushed to the point of exhaustion and fatigue, all in preparation for a lifetime of ministry. That was my seminary experience. The reason I say that is because the prophet Isaiah also attended seminary. But it was a different kind of seminary experience than the one I had. You see, my seminary was in Los Angeles. His was in a vision at the very throne room of Yahweh. My seminary had world-class professors who taught me the Bible. His seminary was a devastating vision of God Himself. My seminary pushed me to the point of exhaustion and fatigue, but, but his seminary experience almost made him go into a coma and die. 
You see, the alma mater of the prophet Isaiah was the seminary of trauma when he had a soul-paralyzing encounter with the infinite worth and majesty of God. And you understand, it almost ended him. It was too much for his fragile heart to take in. Seeing God was a blunt force trauma to the soul that almost killed him. And you see, the reason why I did that, the reason why God traumatized Isaiah with a terrifying vision of himself, the reason why is because he was recruiting Isaiah for a mission. It was a brutal mission. It was an impossible mission, maybe even a suicide mission. It was a mission that on the surface it seemed destined to fail because the best we can tell, there were no converts, no baptisms, no disciples. He, he wouldn't even have any friends. There would be no positive response that we can tell to his ministry of any kind. There would only be rejection, only hostility, only opposition. And what Isaiah needed more than anything else was to be clobbered by the holiness and the majesty of the living God in the seminary of trauma. That's exactly what God gave him. And tonight, free of charge... I have taken the liberty of enrolling you in the seminary of trauma. Through the vision Isaiah recorded right here in chapter 6, because you understand, if we're going to make it through the 21st century, if we're going to have the courage to face the loaded gun of a hostile culture, we need to see what Isaiah saw. We need to experience what Isaiah experienced. We need to be devastated by the majesty of God as he was devastated by the majesty of God. Because you understand, the health and strength of a church to persevere down the lonely and dangerous path of gospel proclamation depends not on their innovation or ingenuity to win a crowd or please the masses, but rather if the God that they worship is the God of Isaiah chapter 6. And to be totally honest, I probably should have had you sign a waiver before you came in here tonight. We should have posted signs outside the door warning you to enter at your own risk. Because what you're about to see is potentially hazardous to your health and it will certainly be hazardous to any puny theology of God. kind of, sort of, tongue-in-cheek, what you're about to see is more dangerous and lethal than radiation, more, more dangerous than plutonium. Why? Because you are about to see the matchless beauty of God, of the God of matchless supremacy who never had a beginning. Through the pen of Isaiah, you're about to enter the real holy of holies where God is there and the white hot holiness of his radiant being. Theological PTSD is what you need. Theological PTSD is what you're going to get. Because that's, that's what we need for a lifetime of ministry. So class begins in Isaiah 6. And I'll read to you verses... One through four. In the year of the death of the king Uzziah, I saw Adonai, the Lord, 
sitting on a throne which was lofty and exalted, and his robes were filling the palace. Seraphim were standing above him, each having six wings. With two, they were covering their face. With two, they were covering their feet. And with two, they flew. And this one called out to this one and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. All of the earth is full of his glory. And the pillars of the thresholds trembled because of the voice of him who called out and the house was filling with smoke. Tonight I want you to see from our text six glimpses. Six devastating glimpses of a God matchless, majestic, and supreme designed to prepare us to preach to a world with courage and boldness. That was kind of long, I'll say it again. Six devastating glimpses of a God, majestic and supreme, designed to prepare us to preach to the world with courage and boldness. Six glimpses of God, majestic and supreme, designed to prepare us to preach with courage and boldness, and the result of this vision will be the fear of God. And so devastating glimpse number one. Number one, the eternality of Yahweh. The eternality of Yahweh. Let's begin in verse one. Look at the text. In the year of the death of the king Uzziah, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Stop there. You know, one of the things that makes Isaiah chapter 6 so intriguing and even staggering in its power is that the chapter seems chronologically out of place, doesn't it? It seems like Isaiah waits five chapters and then goes back in time to when God initially called him to be a prophet, but that's not at all what Isaiah is doing. You see, rather, you have to understand chapter 6 is very much chronological. You see, uh, see, Isaiah had already been a prophet for several months, maybe even up to a year. And so what we see here is not his original installation as a prophet, but his reinstallation. These are not his original marching orders as a prophet. These are his new marching orders as a prophet for Yahweh. And you need to understand that chapter 6 is going to unfold dramatic and even a, a disturbing shift in his ministry. And this new phase of his ministry would include, get this, an increasingly defiant congregation in which there would only be resistance and opposition. And the reason for that, the end of the chapter goes on to explain, you're never going to believe it. The reason for that is because God would harden their hearts and blind their eyes so that they couldn't and wouldn't believe. So needless to say, this new shift in his ministry was going to be dangerous, and it was going to be impossible. I mean, again, on the surface, this seemed like a suicide mission. This, this was destined to fail. This is not going to go well. And so you understand the only thing that could sustain him for a mission like that, the only thing that could reinforce his heart with bulletproof steel was a soul-paralyzing glimpse of the majesty of God, and God delivers. Look again at verse 1. And notice the contrast. In the year 
of the death of the king Uzziah, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. You need to feel this. These are heartbreaking words for a Jew living in 8th century Judea. You understand the, the death of Uzziah, this meant the death of hope, the, the death of stability, the death of a legacy, the death of a dynasty. I mean, King Uzziah wasn't a great king by any stretch of the imagination, but he was about the only good thing happening in a country that was an absolute disaster. And yet he died because all good men die and all men will die. From dust, man was made, and to dust he must return. And you see, the death of Uzziah is one of the reasons why from here on out, Isaiah's ministry is going to be brutal and painful, because after King Uzziah was King Ahaz, who was without a doubt the worst king in the history of Judah. Politically savvy, spiritually stupid, almost everything he would do would bring the country to near extinction. And meanwhile, get a load of this, the monster of Assyria stirs in the east, steamrolling their way day by day closer to Judea. And it was just a matter of time before the armies reached the gates. And so you understand Isaiah chapter 6 is a chapter with a crisis on its back. And yet it is a chapter able to hold the weight. Because again, you notice again, we're going to look at verse 1 again. Notice that the jarring contrast that Isaiah makes here in the text. It is subtle, but it is real. In the year of the death of the king, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. You feel the collision, right? In the year Uzziah was dead, I saw the Lord. The king is dead. He he is over. He is lifeless in the tomb. But the Lord lives on. Uzziah's throne sits empty and unoccupied. The Lord still sits on His. Unchanged by the ever-shifting affairs of the sons of men. And there He sits, never aging, never changing, never beginning. He is the self-existent source of His own radiant being. He was the living God infinite centuries before He created anything. He was the living God in ancient Egypt when they laid the first brick for the pyramids. He was the living God when Socrates drank his poison. He was the living God when the first shot of the Civil War was fired. He was the living God in 1966 when Thomas Altizer pronounced him dead and Time Magazine had the audacity to put it on the cover. He was the living God when 747s flown by terrorists into the World Trade Center towers, killing thousands. And He will be the living God 10 trillion ages from now when all the pathetic pot shots against His reality will have disappeared into oblivion like smoke in the wind. You understand there is not one single king or president who will still be alive in 50 years. The turnover in world leadership is 100%. 
In a brief 110 years, this world will be repopulated by 10 billion brand new people. And all 6 or 7 billion alive of us today will have vanished off the planet just like Uzziah, but not God. He never had a beginning and therefore he depends upon no one or nothing for his existence. He has always been and will always be sovereignly and indestructibly alive. And Isaiah saw him. And the question is, do you see him? Do you see God? Not physically, of course, but do you see him on the pages of Scripture? Do you see the logical implications of the fact that the God in whom you believe never had a beginning? Civilizations come and go. Nations rise and fall. Kings and tyrants have their little day on the stage of human history. The people in your life that scare you and anger you and intimidate you are but a mist and a vapor. But Yahweh continues forever. Devastating glimpse number two. The sovereignty of Yahweh. The sovereignty of Yahweh. Look again at verse 1. In the year of the death of the king, I saw the Lord, here it is, sitting on a throne which was lofty and exalted. No, it's true, the word, the, the, the word sovereignty does not appear there, but it screams sovereignty. Two reasons for that. Number one, two reasons why this screams sovereignty. First, the one Isaiah sees here in the vision is the Lord. The Lord, that, that's not the sacred covenant name Yahweh. Rather, that, that word in Hebrew is the title Adonai. And you have to understand that title literally has the idea of one who rules, one who has authority, one who has dominion, one who is sovereign. And Isaiah chose this title for God, no doubt, because number two, where he sees God and what he sees God doing is sitting on a throne. And if you sit on a throne, you're the one in charge. You're the one in control. You call the shots. You pull the strings. And that's exactly what Yahweh does. And isn't it interesting to you that no vision of heaven has ever caught a glimpse of God plowing a field or mowing a lawn or shining shoes or, or filling out a report or, or loading a truck? Isn't that interesting? No, in every vision, He sits. And he sits on a throne. You have to understand, God is not frantic or panicked, pacing back and forth, biting his nails. He's, not, he's never frantically sketching out a new blueprints, trying to come up with plan B. No, he sits, and he sits on a throne. And although Adonai appears sedentary on the surface, sitting is actually the most active activity in the universe because what he is doing there is ruling and reigning and causing and controlling and guiding and governing everything that comes to pass. You understand, God does not ask people's permission to rule them. God is not some celestial wimp imprisoned by the resistance of man. The precious free will of human beings is a fragile house of cards next to the supreme sovereignty of Yahweh. 
We do not give God authority over our lives. He has it, whether we know it or like it or not. He rules and reigns in and over our lives without our approval and without our consent. Never surprised, never caught off guard, always on time, always in control. There's nothing that transpires in the universe that he did not ordain. The hurricanes that leave cities in ruin and the fragile breeze that blows the gentle leaves in the parking lot, both are under his command. The falling of an avalanche and the falling of an acorn are equally under his dominion. The stock market and every roll of dice in Las Vegas is not chance or luck. It is determined by God. He is sovereign over nations and kings and rulers and over flowers that bloom in the desert that nobody sees except Him. For God to be sovereign does not mean, it does not mean that He merely passively allows things to happen and then simply makes the best of it. In fact, I'm not even persuaded that God allowing things is even biblical terminology at all. What I see is decree. What I see is ordain. What I see is predestined. What I see is guide and govern. And the grammar is clear. It is the throne that is lofty and exalted. I mean, Yahweh is too, of course, but, but what Isaiah sees is the throne sitting at the top of a, an enormous series of steps. Picture it. It is massive and staggering, and it simply towers over everything else in the palace. You see, Isaiah must look up. He must crane his neck up several floors up to see Yahweh sitting on this majestic throne. And the point of that is, is that God has no rivals. This is a God who answers to no one. This is a God who is equal to no one. This is a God who does what He pleases in heaven and on earth and governs every single moment to the exact outcome that He Himself determined. And think, just, just think about the implications of the sovereignty of God. Do you see? Do I see? In light of His comprehensive sovereignty, fear is irrational. Pride is delusional. Complaining is illogical. Anger is nonsensical. To make sense of the world, you have to understand that all of life, that all of reality is the uninterrupted domain of His divine activity. And when we get that, we will be courageous, we will be humble, we will be joyful, or should I say, we will fear God. Devastating glimpse number three. Number three, the supremacy of Yahweh. The supremacy of Yahweh. Look what Isaiah describes at the end of verse 1. Squinting his eyes, looking up several floors to see the throne. He sees Yahweh sitting on this majestic throne. And notice what he says. He says his robes or the train of his robes fills the palace. I don't know if you feel this or not, but what Isaiah is allowed to see here is both frightening and bizarre. Almost like a nightmare. You understand, Isaiah is not eye level with a throne. 
Nor is he at the base of the throne looking up. Rather, rather, he is across the palace with his back against the wall. Isaiah is standing at the raw edge of terror, and as far as he can see, the royal robes of Yahweh fill every square inch of this massive palace. The ground is completely covered with his kingly robes, which means there's no room for anyone else to stand, but only to linger terrified at a distance. And yet, what does this mean? What does this mean that the royal robes of Yahweh fill the temple? Well, you've seen them, haven't you? Brides on their wedding day, who have the long train on their gowns, it follows after them, it, it covers the steps behind them. I mean, you know what that signifies, don't you? This is radiance, this is magnificence, this is beauty, this is splendor, this is majesty. And yet, what would the meaning be if her train, if the train of her robe filled the entire auditorium and covered the seats and even the whole stage? not allowing anyone even to enter the room, but only to watch through the foyer. What would it mean? It would simply mean that she is the most important person in the room, and that is exactly what this means. That's interesting, isn't it? It's the supremacy of God that keeps Isaiah from coming any closer. Psalm 93 verse 1 says that Yahweh reigns. He is clothed with majesty. He has clothed and girded Himself with strength. Psalm 104 verse 1 declares that Yahweh is clothed with majesty. The point is, this is a God of matchless, unrivaled supremacy. Without a mediator, this is a God from whom you should keep your distance. This is a God whose glory is too lethal. His holiness is too harmful for sinners to approach without a mediator, without a savior, and accept great distance. They must shield their eyes from the splendor because it would kill them to look directly upon it. And I know we're not accustomed to speaking about God like this, but I just tell you, I am concerned for the church. I am concerned that this God, this reigning king of unapproachable majesty, has been a little misrepresented in many gospel presentations. That the God proclaimed and believed on by many people is just a little too chummy. He's just a little too soft. He's a little too domesticated. He's a little too human. My concern is some people want all of God's mercy, but little of His majesty. They want all of His sympathy, but little of His supremacy. They want all of His condescension and compassion for sinners, which is gloriously true. We don't leave that. We don't lose that. But for many, it comes at the cost of His power and His preeminence. This will not do. Therefore, we must fight. We must fight the impulse of our hearts to reshape God into who we would like Him to be. We must battle the pagan urge within us to, to shrink the infinite chasm that exists between the Almighty and ourselves. Because you real, realize this, I'm sure you do, that we live in a profoundly man-centered age. 
that the God complex of the human soul feels this irresistible compulsion to find meaning and significance in the supremacy of the self. The people are persuaded that the secret to mental health and well-being is to be esteemed and to be lauded and to be exalted as significant. And that's true. We are significant. We are. Being created in the image of God, we are the most important thing God made. But the reality is the soul is not truly healthy until it learns to savor and adore the matchless supremacy of God. Don't you see that the secret to a thriving soul is not to avoid thinking deeply about God, but to push ourselves deeper than ever into who God is. Which looks like what? How do you do this? I'll tell you what you do. The answer is you find the most staggering passage in the Bible that you can find on the majesty or the supremacy or the glory of God, and then you take the next three months of your life, I'm not even kidding, and meditate on that text every single day. Because you understand the more glory we see of who God is, the more you are liberated from the sins that entangle you. That brings us to devastating glimpse number four. Number four, the splendor of Yahweh. The splendor of Yahweh and the scene which Isaiah unfolds for us becomes increasingly unsettling, if not bizarre. Through squinted eyes, Isaiah can look up and see Yahweh at his throne, but notice what he also sees. Look at verse 2. He sees seraphim standing above him, each having six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. We see here, don't we, that Yahweh is not alone. There are others with Him at His kingly throne. And, you know, one of the things that kings in the ancient Near East did to put their splendor on display was to have an entourage around them. Soldiers, bodyguards, the most impressive, preeminent people in the entire kingdom standing around the kingly throne. I mean, you understand it wasn't only practical to have an entourage, it was for effect. The greater the entourage, the more impressive is the splendor of the king. And you understand Yahweh also has an entourage around him, and they're called the seraphim. The first and only time these appear in the Old Testament, and get this, that word seraphim literally means the burning ones, which tells us they are fiery and dazzling and even blinding in appearance. These creatures are not cute and cuddly, they are dangerous and deadly. These are not chubby babies with wings, they are lethal and life-threatening, and we know that because in verse 4, when they speak, the very, the very foundations of the temple are shaken. Rather, you would do better to think of them as a squadron of F-22 Raptor fighter jets cracking the sound barrier on their way to destroy an enemy. You understand, these are soldiers. 
Armed forces, angelic mercenaries, instruments of, a, of destruction. You don't play with seraphim. You run and hide from the seraphim. In fact, their very presence at the throne could very well indicate that God here is in the mood for judgment. The God's anger is about to be unleashed. One writer says this, he says, The seraphim present a sense of danger here as guardians of the holy and agents of destruction. I think he's right. And yet we see that their job, their primary role at the throne is to worship. To worship Yahweh and, and revere Him. And look again at how Isaiah describes Him. He notes that the seraphim were standing, or rather hovering over Yahweh, each having six wings. With two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. More alarming than any horror film ever made, Isaiah says they have six Wings, And you notice two of those wings, they, they cover their faces, not out of shame or guilt, but because they are unable to look fully at the majesty of God. To look fully upon Him would destroy them, and so they cannot help but shield their eyes. With two of their wings, the seraphim cover their feet, which is an expression of humility and unworthiness. Although untainted by human sin, they still cover their feet to keep God from their contamination. They cannot look at Yahweh. They don't feel worthy to leave their feet exposed in His presence. And finally, Isaiah says that with two wings, the seraphim fly. They fly and they hover, ready for service, ready for action, ready to be told what to do. They are always in striking position, ready to do the service and the bidding of the king. And you understand, the point of the seraphim is not actually the seraphim. Any splendor they possess is a derived splendor, a borrowed splendor. A microscopic glimpse and reflection of the splendor of the one who created them. And we might think, so what? <laughs> so what? What does this even matter to my life? What, what, do, what do six-winged angelic beings who are on fire have anything to do with my life? Well, that's an interesting question because they are created and you are created. And you see, as created beings, we have the same purpose that they do, which is to marvel at the God who created us. Because you understand these seraphim, they get worship. They get the fear of God. They get the unapproachable majesty of the God who spoke galaxies into existence. They understand that God is not our buddy or our pal or the big guy in the sky or the man upstairs, but rather is a majestic God, radiant and holy in His being. Better than anyone else, these Seraphim, get what A.W. Tozer said when he said what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Indeed, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself. And the most significant fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he deep in his heart conceives God to be like. He goes on. 
all the problems of heaven and earth, though they were to confront us together and at once, would be nothing compared to the overwhelming problem of God. The man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems for he sees that they cannot concern him for very long. And my point is we would do well to take a page out of the book of the Seraphim. For when we begin to see God, how they see God, that is literally the secret to all holiness and hope and courage and perseverance. Which brings us to devastating glimpse number five. Number five, the holiness of Yahweh. The holiness of Yahweh. Well, these seraphim, these burning ones, they have wings and they have mouths. Wings to serve and do the bidding of the king, mouths to proclaim the infinite worth of God. And here what they proclaim around the throne is one of the most jaw-dropping declarations about God ever made in the pages of Scripture, and we see it in the text. Look, if you dare, at verse 3. And this one called out to this one and said, Holy, holy, Holy is Yahweh of hosts. All of the earth is full of His glory. You know, when rabbis read that text, they get to verse 3 and they sing it. They chant it. And you understand there are some truths about God in the Bible that put us in our rightful place, don't they? that leave us feeling like little ants at the foot of Mount Everest. There are truths in the Bible like a theological wrecking ball that rightly demolish our puny, anemic, man-centered thoughts about God and the holiness of God. You understand is exactly that kind of doctrine, that kind of truth, because you notice what the seraphim say to one another back and forth antiphonally to one another is that God is kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. He is holy, 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 the question is, what is the holiness of God? What does it mean that God is holy? And furthermore, why is it repeated three times? And the real question is, have you encountered it? Have you been gripped by it? Have you been exposed to the radioactive holiness of the living God? Because once you are, you can never be the same again. Apparently, because Isaiah certainly wasn't. I mean, his favorite title of God used dozens and dozens of times after chapter 6 is Kadosh Yisrael, the Holy One of Israel. Certainly had an effect upon him. And so what does it mean that God is holy? And you have to understand at the outset that his holiness does not merely mean his sinlessness. His holiness does not merely mean his morality. It includes those things, of course, but it is not only that. Rather, what the holiness of God is lies in the oceanic depths of his character, thousands and thousands of miles beneath the surface of man's feeble comprehension. Yet that's exactly where we're going, deep and dark and devastating. 
The holiness of God to understand kadosh in the Hebrew literally has the idea of that which is different. That which is distinct. That which is set apart and separate. You understand His holiness is His transcendence. It is His otherness. It is His uncreated majesty. It is His matchless, unrivaled supremacy. You have to understand the holiness is less a single attribute of God rather than it is a collective summary way to describe God's infinite transcendence and incomparability. To get holiness, we have to understand that there isn't some chain of command or some continuum of beings where God is the highest in a descending order of beings. No, for God to be holy means that there's God and there's everybody else. There is God and there is no one like Him. The very Godness of God makes Him separate from everything that is not God. He's not holy because He keeps the rules. He's holy because He wrote the rules. His very character defines the rules. God is in a class by Himself because He is supremely valuable in every way. And I think the best way to illustrate the holiness of God comes from a book that I read to the girls several years ago called The Never-Ending Story. Stories about this takes place in another universe about this boy Atreyu sent on this dangerous quest to save a dying princess and uh, along the way he had to pass through these massive gates guarded by these two enormous deadly creatures standing on either side of the gates and Atreyu had to walk between them and survive. And you understand the way that these beings, these monsters were described is a little bit like the holiness of God. Listen carefully. He had been through a good deal in the great quest. He had seen beautiful things. He had seen horrible things. But up until now, he had not known that one and the same creature can be both. That beauty can be terrifying. The two monsters were bathed in moonlight as an Ezetreu approached, they seemed to grow beyond measure. Their heads seemed to touch the moon. It was as though these beings didn't merely exist in the way marble exists, for instance, but for that reason they seemed more real than anything made of stone. Fear gripped Atreyu. Fear not so much of the danger that threatened him as it was the fear of encountering something above and beyond his own self. No. What made his steps heavier and heavier as he approached closer until he felt as though he were made of cold gray lead was Fear of the unfathomable, of something intolerably vast. That's exactly the holiness of God. Did you hear it? Beautiful and terrifying. Unfathomable and intolerably vast. That is the holiness of God. 
You have to understand, God is kind, but He is not tame. God is not a monster, but He is also not safe. He is a father full of filial affection for his children, but he is not to be trifled with. And in his son, he is a friend. He is a friend. You need to see God as a friend. He is that for sure. But you have to remember that he is the kind of friend who caused you to exist and who demands your allegiance. You know, old theologians back in the day used to describe God's holiness and majesty as dreadful and terrible. You ever read those guys? You've got to go back about 150 years, but they're there, and they use words like the awful majesty of God and the dreadful holiness of the Almighty. And what they meant was not that God wasn't loving or kind or gracious or gentle, because He absolutely is, but they understood that the right and appropriate response of worship to the sheer, raw holiness of God is a sense of terror and dread and even trepidation. Why? Because this is a God unfathomable and intolerably vast. And, and you notice out of the mouths of the seraphim come this threefold repetition of the holiness of God. Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy. You know what that is? That's Hebrew mathematics. That's that's. Holiness raised to the third power. This is a Hebrew way to describe the exponential holiness of God that should ex explode the calculator of our minds. You see, we will never figure him out. We will never solve him. We will never get to the bottom of who he is. We will never reach the top of the ladder of who he is. You see, that is the holiness of God. You can pose the question of who he is, and you should, but the answer takes all eternity. And so the question is, what do we do with this? What are the logical implications to the holiness of God in our lives? And there are hundreds, hundreds of applications. Here is just a few to consider. Number one, the holiness of God rightly encountered and deeply, cons and rightly considered and deeply encountered frees us from loving anything too deeply that is not God. Number two, the holiness of God rightly considered and deeply encountered prevents us from tolerating even one second any thought about God that does not originate from His own Word. Number three, the holiness of God rightly considered and deeply encountered is the greatest power against the sin in the secret moments of our lives because God is there in the totality of His being. Number four, the holiness of God rightly considered and deeply encountered is one of the first things poor sinners need to understand if they are ever going to be saved by Jesus Christ. And I suppose we could add a fifth. The holiness of God, rightly considered and deeply encountered, produces the fear of God. 
devastating glimpse number six. Final one. Number six, the glory of Yahweh. The glory of Yahweh. There, there are more lyrics to the song of the seraphim. We cut them off halfway through their sentence. And so let's read the text again and let's hear everything they have to say. They say to one another, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. Here it is. All of the earth is full of His glory. The earth is full of His glory. And there it is, the glory of God. And yet the question is not so much what is the glory of God, although that's true too, but rather the question is, what is the relationship between God's holiness and God's glory? And what does it mean that the earth is filled with it? Do you see? And we talk about the glory of God all the time, don't we? And we should, and we must, because it is literally the meaning of everything. And yet, and yet, to make sense out of God and the world, we have to get to the bottom of the glory of God. We have to understand what this is, because that word in Hebrew, kavod, the word glory in Hebrew is kavod, and it literally has the idea of that which is weighty, that which is heavy, that which is bulky. And when you apply that to a person, you're talking about a person of gravity, a person of weight and significance, and when you, someone who is impressive and important. And when you apply that to God, you talk about someone of infinite weight and importance. To put it another way, listen carefully, the glory of God is simply a summary way to describe the infinite worth and value of God because of the innumerable perfections that make Him who He is. Glory is like a divine math equation where you add up the full number of God's perfections and excellencies and the sum total at the bottom is an infinite value. And so glory is simply the Scripture's way of saying the infinite worth of God. It is His glory. And yet the question is, what do the seraphim mean? What's the connection between the holiness of God and the glory of God? And how is creation the bridge between the two? This is an important question because they're making a connection. We need to see this. And here's the answer. Here's what they mean by their declaration. Here it is. What they're saying is, all of creation reveals the glory of a God who is holy. That's what they mean. All of creation reveals the glory of a God who is holy. In other words, the glory of God displayed in what is made reflects the worth and beauty of a God who is unmade. Do you see? Creation is the tangible beauty of the God who transcends His creation. And so as the seraphim look out in the world and they see what God has made, they see the sovereign power and beauty of a God who is matchless and incomparable. They see a God who is, who is unfathomable and intolerably vast. The question is, what do you see when you look out into the world? Do you see the glory of God? Do you see in what is made the worth and beauty of the God who is unmade? 
Do you see in creation the tangible beauty of a God who transcends His creation? Because we have almost been permanently ruined by secular science, haven't we? There's nothing wrong with science. Science is a good thing. God made it. But you have to understand that in our modernist, naturalistic tendencies to explain all things by mechanical processes, we forget about the supernatural. What's your response to the question, why does it rain? What's your response to the question, what is the sun? What is light? There are scientific answers and there are divine answers. And although the statement does lots for me, verse 3, what verse 3 also does is jar me with just how evil evolution really is. I'm not really going to go on a tirade on evolution right now, but you have to understand that the seraphim declare the infinite worth of God displayed in and through creation. They cite it as evidence of the matchless supremacy of God and evolution is designed to suck God's glory out of it. That will not do. Because creation reveals the glory of a God who is holy. I'm almost done. As if it were possible, the scene somehow becomes even more unsettling. Isaiah, who's been a terrified spectator in the corner this whole time, all of a sudden becomes painfully aware of his surroundings. Look at verse 4. And the pillars of the thresholds trembled because of the voice who him who called out, and the house was being filled with smoke. What is shocking to me is that this is not the voice of God. This is the voice of the seraphim. As these majestic beings call out to one another, the very tectonic plates of heaven tremble, and the entire palace is being shaken to its very foundations. The walls and the beams of this massive temple are trembling because of the voice of the seraphim who just shattered the sound barrier proclaiming the glory of God. And if this is the voice of a created being, then what is the voice of Him who sits on the throne? And so as we close here, I want you to imagine that the chaos of the scene, I want you to take it in. Yahweh's throne looming in the palace. Royal robes cover the ground. Angel voices like cannons when they speak. The walls are cracking. The ground is shaking. And to top it all off, Isaiah says at the end of verse 4 that the temple is filling with smoke which can't be a good thing, and it's not a good thing. Because where there's smoke, there's fire. And where there is smoke in the palace is the fire of God's wrath. And five verses later, God announces exactly, or a few verses later, God announces exactly what that wrath and judgment is. But for now, for now, we have to ask the question, and I close with this, why is this happening to Isaiah? And at this particular stage in redemptive history, why this, why now? And the answer is because. Because he was really, really going to need it. You understand Isaiah was going to wake up that next morning and he was going to preach to a people who, from whom he would receive 
only opposition, only unbelief, only hostility. No one would repent. No one would believe. No one would yield in submission to the Word of God. You understand this new stage of Isaiah's ministry is going to be lonely and it's going to be impossible. And so the only, the only thing that could sustain Isaiah through a ministry mission like that was to enroll for classes in the seminary of trauma and get his soul clobbered by the majesty of God. And I just want you to know that should you and I walk down that same path of gospel proclamation, and we are all called to do that, by the way. That if we're going to be, as Christ said, sheep in the midst of wolves, that if we're going to preach to a world with courage and boldness, that like Isaiah, we too must get our degree from the seminary of trauma, that we have to be more staggered by the supremacy of God than we are by the people created by God. That if we're going to be a people, that if you're going to be a church used by God to save His elect in every nation through the proclamation of the gospel, then you must be persuaded that the God in whom you believe is the God of Isaiah chapter 6. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it's hard to conceive all that you are. It is impossible. We are temporal. You are eternal. We are created. You are the creator. We are finite. You are infinite. We are the unclean. You are the holy one. And so Lord, what we need, what we need, oh Lord, is greater glimpses of you more devastating visions of who you are. We need you, O Lord, to cause us, to compel us, to move us, to push us, to be in your word every single day, to see things like this that move our soul to worship and to fear, to fear you. O Lord, and we understand that theology is not just for its own sake. We understand, O Lord, that, that learning about you is not merely just so that we can learn new things, but that it compels us to worship and it compels us also to preach. Help us, Lord. Help us to be a people like that, compelled and convinced and gripped by who you are. Help us to fear you, and it's in the mighty and matchless name of your Son that we pray. Amen.